On behalf of the Society of Armenian Studies podcast, this is Michael Bobelian in a conversation with Bedros Dermatosyan, a graduate of Hebrew University and Columbia University, where he received a PhD in Middle East history. Bedros is currently a professor and the vice chair of the history department at the University of Nebraska. Bedros has been the recipient of numerous awards and honors over the years, currently sits on multiple boards of academic centers, is the series editor of the Armenians in the Modern and Early Modern World for IB Taurus, and is also the president of the Society of Armenian Studies. During his time in academia, he has presented at many symposiums and panel discussions, organized conferences, and published dozens of articles and chapters of books. Most notably, his first book, Shattered Dreams of Revolution, From Liberty to Violence in the Late Ottoman Empire, was published by Stanford University Press in 2014. Also released by Stanford, his second book, The Horrors of Adana, Revolution and Violence in the Early 20th Century, was published earlier this year. Welcome to the program, Bedros. Thank you, Michael. So Bedros, tell us a bit about your book, The Horrors of Adana, and how it came about. Actually, I was always interested with the uh, with the Adana massacres and uh, it has been uh, a project in my mind for years. So uh, the book is a sequel to my first book, Shattered Dreams of Revolution, which examined the ways in which non-dominant groups in the Ottoman Empire reacted towards the Young Turk Revolution of 1908, the way in which the 1908 revolution affected these non-dominant groups, basically Armenians, Arabs, and Jews. So that book ended with the counter-revolution that took place in 1909, April 13, 1909, by the reactionary forces. And there is a long debate whether the palace of Sultan Abdul Hamid II was involved in these massacres or involved in the counter-revolution. But one thing is obvious that the counter-revolution of 1909 became an excuse for the young Turks to get rid of Sultan Abdul Hamid II. So the last chapter of that book dealt with the counter-revolution, and I dedicated two pages to the Hamidian massacres, and sorry, to the Adana massacres. And this is a part of a trilogy that I'm writing. The first book was the Ottoman Sultan Dreams of a Revolution. The second book is the uh, Adana massacres of the 1909, and the third book would be the Balkan Wars of 1912-1913 from the perspective of the non-dominant groups in the Ottoman Empire, the way that they viewed the Balkan Wars, the way that the Balkan Wars affected these groups, and the way in which the central authorities reacted towards these nominant, non-dominant groups during the Balkan Wars. So, Hence, I decided to write the book on the Adana massacres uh, in order to shed light on this uh, specific event that goes into, that has been marginalized in the historiography of the Ottoman Empire and modern Middle East history. And as a matter of fact, it doesn't even, it's not even mentioned in footnotes within these, uh, within the, within the scholarship in these fields. That's great. So, I wanted to ask you about the causes of the massacres, but before I do that, I'm intrigued by what you, how you ended that answer with the marginalization of this episode. Why is that the case? Is it because it's overshadowed by the genocide? Is it because 
it doesn't fit into a neat explanation of history. Why do you think are the causes of this marginalization? It is overshadowed by the Armenian genocide. As a matter of fact, most scholarship, as you know, Michael, you're also an expert in the field, uh, has been uh, overshadowed by the Armenian genocide. Most of the scholarship tends to concentrate on the Arm- Armenian genocide on the expense of the previous uh, phases of massacre, mm-hmm. namely the Hamidian massacres and the uh, and the Adana massacres. Of course, the Adana massacres, I call it the Adana massacres, but these massacres also uh, extended to the Aleppo province. Hence, there are cities in Aleppo province that also face the massacres. But being Adana as the major province that faced the Adana, that faced the massacres, we call them the Adana massacres. Okay, and we'll get back to the historiography because I think that's very interesting in terms of how how and why historians study and depict the events they do. Uh, but let's go back to the the root of the Adana massacres. You you said you kind of left off your first book with them starting as a consequence of this counter revolution. So what were the causes of the massacres? And you know, what history is uh, offering us hindsight, could they have been avoided? Could the atrocity have been avoided? Uh, massacres are, are always a complex phenomenon, as you know, Michael. And uh, we cannot explain massacres based on history only. Uh, we need also social scientific approach to explain massacres, such as political science, sociology, psychology, anthropology, and so on. I argue in the book that these massacres are the results of long-term causes and short-term causes. Of course, these long-term causes and short-term causes happens in other areas in the Ottoman Empire. But uh, what led to the massacres in the in the Adana in in, in Adana is a host of uh, contingent events that led to the eruption of violence. The long-term causes consisted of the major transformation that took place in the province in the 19th century as a result of global changes, the Tanzimat reforms, the sedentarization of nomadic tribes, migrations from the uh, surrounding provinces, and the influx of Muslim refugees uh, escaping persecution from the Caucasus. Uh, One thing it is important to emphasize here is the economic development in Adana. Adana is a hub for cotton production, and on annual basis, around 60 to 70,000 migrant workers would come twice to Adana in the spring and autumn to, uh, to, uh, to till and to harvest the cotton and other, other, uh, other uh, productions. And the Armenians were a minority in these, uh, in these migrant um, uh, uh, workers, And the modernization that took place in the end of the 19th century was not only modernization in terms of uh, of administration, in terms of uh, communication, but also in terms of uh, modernization in the implements of cotton production. Hence, Armenians played a dominant role in bringing new machinery for the cotton production. And once you do that towards the end of the 19th century, you're cutting the, uh, the daily bread of the migrant workers who benefited from the pre-modern, pre-modern modes of production. And hence, this created a major resentment towards the, uh, towards the Armenians. Uh, but also other issues involved in long-term uh, causes, such as agrarian question, land competition, uh, lack of resources. In terms of, uh, in terms of the short-term 
process. Uh, the uh, the short-term process, we're dealing with the three event, the counter-revolution of 1909, sorry, the uh, revolution of 1908, the uh, emergence of public spheres in the Ottoman Empire, and the counter-revolution of 1909. I argue that the revolution played a dominant role of 1908 played a dominant role in the escalation of ethnic tensions within the Ottoman Empire in general, but also in the province of Adana. The 1908 revolution led to a dramatic dramatic rise in ethnic tensions due to the fact that now you have the emergence of disgruntled elements within the Ottoman Empire who had lost power and prestige uh, uh, from the as a result of the revolution, and they became uh, as part of the ancien regime. Hence, you have the emergence of new interest groups in the Ottoman Empire, the uh, disruption of the uh, power equilibri- equilibrium in the Ottoman Empire, which was finely tuned during the Hamidian, uh, Hamidian period, and hence you have the uh, so you have the revolution that. 1908 revolution that caused uh, the uh, systematic change in the power structure. Yes, Michael. Yes, I'm here. We got cut off a little bit, but go on the disruption you were saying. Disruption of the power equilibrium that had existed in the empire for a long period of time. So, so that, that's really fascinating, you know, and. So my daughter took a European history this year, and they always go into the causes of World War One, World War Two, right? And you have what you're kind of saying are these broader global forces that aren't in anyone's control, right? Migration, land competition, um, uh, differences in how uh, administrations take place. You have the 1908 revolution, right? But then you also have people making decisions, right? Whether it's Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime in World War Two whether it's the leaders of Russia, Germany, Austria, Hungary, France, England in World War I, you have this combination of bigger, broader forces, but also decision makers. So I'm wondering with the Adana massacres, is there that second part? Are there decision makers? Are there individuals who were in power, whether formal power like a government position or informally uh, powerful, who took advantage of these broader forces and ignited uh, the massacres? Uh, one important thing we have always to emphasize that Armenians were not only victims, as is represented within the history of Armenian uh, Armenian history or Ottoman history, but they were active agents in their own history. Uh-huh. So after the Young Turk revolutions, revolution, we have the beginning of uh, the cultural nationalism that, that began in the Ottoman Empire, because revolution now uh, opened a new era of public sphere, of freedom, liberty, and the idea of expressing your identity in public. So Armenians played an important role in Adana too in expressing their uh, their uh, their culture, nationalism, through odes, through poetry, through theatrical presentation, through purchasing guns. And so they also uh, played a role indirectly actually in leading to the escalation of ethnic violence. And to that extent, the uh, the Muslim population in the Ottoman Empire, specifically in Adana, now, viewed the Armenian uh, Armenian uh, uh, activities as uh, as a 
as a desire to establish a state or an independent state. So there, that's why I emphasize the factor of rumor in the book that played an important role in escalating the uh, ethnic tensions. And these rumors existed prior to the revolution that Armenian revolutionaries were preparing for an uprising which would lead to international intervention and eventually establishment of the uh, independent kingdom of Cilicia. Because Adana was uh, in the Cilician, Cilician region, hence uh, the past here, the Cilician past also played an important role in the in the in this uh, in this uh, major rumor or the prophecy, let's say, so, so the so-called prophecy that Armenians are uh, have a sinister aim to establish the kingdom of Cilicia, and these existed prior to the revolution. But after the revolution, these rumors now spread drastically. But not only as rumors where Muslim population are seeing with their own eyes that Armenians are buying weapons, they are uh, having processions, they're carrying flags, and they're talking about their past, their past of the Cilician past of region. But these were only part of cultural nationalism, I argue. But it sent the wrong wrong messages. But also for... uh, for uh, and also in in discussing agent you have agency you have also uh, agents provocateurs who play a dominant role in disseminating these rumors right exaggerating these rumors and in saying that armenians are preparing for the uprising so certain sector within the muslim population really believe genuinely genuinely that the armenians are preparing for an uprising and hence when the counter-revolution news comes when uh, it, it leads to a major uh, f- phase of violence and leads to the first wave of massacres. Right. That's that's fascinating about the rumors. I remember when I was reading that in your book, it reminded me of modern-day conspiracy theories and how even if they seem very far-fetched, uh, there's some people who genuinely believe them and there's some people who take advantage and exploit um, these kinds of uh, conspiracy theories and, and whatnot. So uh, in weird ways, a lot of connections to modern life in America uh, from a time and place that seems so far far away from it. Um, can you talk a little bit about your you know, 1908 revolution and this counter-revolution? How, if you could more directly link to how then that leads to the Adana massacres, like if the counter-revolution hadn't taken place, do you think the massacres would have eventually happened or would they, or was that really the spark that was needed to erupt in this violence? Well, I mean, as historian, historians, we don't use the ifs, you know, if this happened, that could have happened. Right. It wasn't only the counter-revolution, I should say. There was an event that triggered the massacres when an Armenian was attacked by three Muslims as a self-defense, he kills two Muslims and the, and the, and the uh, funeral of these Muslims becomes modes of uh, a means for mobilization of the masses. Ethnic boundaries became uh, solidified, and eventually, the uh, the ethnicity of the killer, the Armenian killer, becomes generalized. That this is an Armenian event rather than an individual event. Think of the assassination of Indira Gandhi, which I discuss. By her right. Sikh bodyguards, it became kind of this is a Sikh, Sikh conspiracy rather than these are two individual Sikh, uh, uh, Sikh bodyguards. And hence that escalates the tension. And with the arrival of the counter-revolution, 
the disgruntled elements in the uh, in the in the in Adana now take upon themselves to really change the dynamics of power and the balance and those who caused the counter caused the revolution and would be responsible for the constitution and their collaborators meaning Armenians but one thing is interesting in the case of in the case of Adana that unlike other places where the where the conservative or reactionary elements have targeted the CUP, we see a, a fuzzy thing happening in Adana that now the CUP and the, the revolution and the counter-revolution forces target the Armenians. And the mm-hmm. and that leads to the second wave of massacres, whereby the Young Turk newspaper Etidal plays a dominant role in the in-between uh, period of the two massacres in writing about the Armenian sinister aims of uh, revolution, sinister aims of rising against the Ottoman uh, government to establish the independent kingdom of Cilicia. And one important thing, Michael, is that people tend to believe things that are written more than things that are conveyed orally. And he did that in his issue of Etidal, number 33. He, he mapped the whole Armenian conspiracy in a written format, and that played an important role in convincing the local population that this is finally true, that the Armenians indeed, during the first phase of massacres, during the first phase, it was a failed attempt to institute the independent kingdom of Cilicia. But the the idea was that the European ships were going to intervene, cruisers, uh, uh, military cruisers, and European ships were docked in Mersin, but they didn't intervene. And that has to do with the humanitarian intervention, something that I discuss in the course of the in the book. As a matter of fact, I argue that humanitarian intervention never took place in the case of Armenians, unlike the case of Crete or in the case of Lebanon and other cases. So to that extent, Armenians also put a strong self-defense during the first wave of massacres. And due to the self-defense, due to the defense, they were able to minimize the number of the victims. And Muslims seeing that Armenians were shooting in a, against them during the first wave of massacres interpreted this as, as the beginning of the uprising and the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy that has been going on uh, since the 1908 revolution. Right. So you have this strange combination of broader forces, rumors and conspiracy theories, misunderstandings on both sides of what each other, what the other side is doing and why they're doing it. And, uh, and that, I guess that's what makes it a very complex event, as you said initially, that there is no easy explanation uh, for this. Um, Michael, one thing we have to remember that leadership plays an important role. The governor of that province failed to uh, live to his duties. He should have called martial law. He should have, uh, he should have, uh, he should have called martial law bring troops and crush any types of uprising, any types of disorder, as was done in the case of Aleppo, actually. So Aleppo has similar trend, but he was able, Rashid Pasha was able to avoid uh, that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of uh, disorder. In the case of Adana, the Vali, Javad, who, uh, Javad, who was tried towards the end of the uh, courts martial, uh, wasn't able to, uh, failed actually, to deal 
with this situation. And he is the number one responsible for the events. Right, right. So that, that, that's a great combination of that question he, I had asked a while back of these broader forces, but then individual actors and what their roles are. Um, so thank you for that. Um, looking broadly, did the massacres change the Ottoman Empire, change its trajectory in any way? Or can they be seen as this kind of one-time random outburst of violence and not as part of some longer-term historical trend? Of course, there is the continuum approach, uh, Michael, as you know, that the that the violence that befell on Armenians in the during the Armenian genocide was the result of waves of violence that that led to the Armenian genocide. We're talking about the continuum uh, continuum approach, right. which argues that it began with the Hamidi massacres and ended with the Armenian genocide. Kind of some historians call that there was a culture of massacre. I disagree with this. I think that phases of violence have their own settings, have their own structures. And uh, I wouldn't, I don't think that the Adana massacres, which some historians called a dress rehearsal for the Armenian genocide, was a dress rehearsal for the Armenian genocide. I think it was a separate event. Uh, Young Turk Revolution was a trigger uh, that led to the Adana massacres, the reactionary forces, conservative forces, and the people of the Ancien Regime, in addition of the local CUP, played an important role in the implementation and the perpetration of these massacres. So I don't view it as a continuum. I view okay. it as separate. But one thing is important to notice this, and it happens in different massacres also globally, you know, the case of the Sikh, in the case of in the case of the Odessa massacres, that it's the uh, impunity is important of the perpetrators, but also the lack of uh, the lack of justice. Uh, what we see is nominal justice, and this brings us to the case to the to the real question whether there is really justice in all events uh, of mass murders. I mean, in the case of the Holocaust, for example, I think 30 people were tried. In the case case of the Armenian genocide, we had military tribunals and a few people were hanged. Uh, Others were uh, sentenced to death in absentia. Also the Talat Pasha and his uh, group, etc. But is there justice? And, uh, you know, uh, is there really justice? What we see in Adana is a nominal justice that exists. So I'm going to discuss that. Uh, but impunity is important because impunity emboldens the perpetrators to uh, to uh, to uh, to perpetrate acts of violence uh, in the future. And there wasn't European intervention. There wasn't any kind of large military pressure on the Ottoman Empire to to really try the culprits, and this led to a kind of failure of justice in the case of Adana. What we see is just, uh, you know, some uh, second, secondary or tertiary level of, of actors or perpetrators being tried or being sentenced to death, some of them even innocent Muslim migrant workers, just to show that they are uh, instituting justice. Right. That's very interesting. Um, and outside of the Armenian situation. Did it change the Ottoman Empire in other ways? Did the CUP react uh, administratively, politically? Um, you know, did, did it did it have a profound impact in in any other way? Do you think? Meaning on the future? Yeah, or just how the how they proceeded going forward after seeing this kind of eruption? Did they did the did the government change? Did um, ethnic 
relations change uh, within the empire because of it? Let's start with the Armenians. Armenians lost hope uh, with the new regime, with the Young Turk regime. Of course, Mm -hmm. uh, I discussed this in the first book, Young Turk Revolution led to a large euphoria, major euphoria among the Armenians that finally the Hamidian regime ended. Finally, Finally, there is no despotism and we are going now to live in a new society where our identity would be a collective Ottoman citizenship identity or Ottoman citizens who are all equal. But again, there is a, a there is a there is a, a contradictory uh, visions of what the Ottoman Empire should be. Uh, uh, these contradictory visions were based on the ways in which non-dominant groups vis- uh, envisioned the future and how the Young Turk Party, the CUP Committee of Union and Progress, envisioned the future. But until the counter-revolution, there is kind of pessimism, but also there is kind of hope that we are continuing with this new idea. But the counter-revolution now comes to becomes a litmus test for the regime that giving too much freedom, giving too much uh, uh, freedom, and giving too much uh, freedom of expression led to a major crisis in the Ottoman Empire. And so they changed their policy. Uh, they they now. Uh, uh, they they restrain the freedom of expression. Uh, they pass regulations on 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 the right for assembly, and eventually this leads to a much more drastic measures that the Young Turks will will take until 1912, where the uh, where the Balkan Wars are going to take place, and when the uh, Ottomans lose the Balkan Wars after the first uh, Balkan Wars. The second Balkan Wars, the CUP initiates coup d'etat and takes the reins in its hand by establishing now uh, a pure form of uh, uh, authoritarian regime. Okay, that's interesting to see how it changed the CUP and the governance of of, um, this new Ottoman regime. Um, Let me switch now to... Uh, the scholarship involved in doing this, and how did how did you conduct the bulk of the research? Where are you getting your information from? Where's the, you know, where's it largely coming from? And what were the biggest challenges you faced uh, in that process? Uh, in the, uh, the the project is aimed to give voice to perpetrators, victims, and bystand bystander bystanders. Uh, it's based on 15 archives, uh, concentrating on the Ottoman archives, mm-hmm. uh, the Armenian archives in Armenia, the British, the French, the German, the Austrian, the uh, Vatican, and uh, many other archives. And it's also based on periodicals in, uh, you know, in 12 languages in order to also see the international impact of this event. Uh, as I said at the beginning, the event has been marginalized in the historiography of the Middle East or the Ottoman Empire, but at the time it was globally known, even in the front pages, for example, of the Omaha Beer. Omaha Bee wow. was a newspaper published in Omaha. It was on the front page, the Adana massacres. In every other state in the United States, it was on the front page during the events themselves. So it was known, known globally. And to that extent, I wanted to show the local, the regional, the international impact of the Adana massacres. Now, in terms of challenges, of course, there are a lot of challenges while conducting these types of archives, uh, these types of research. First of all, we don't have, for example, the complete, uh, complete archives of the Armenian diocese of Adana 
in order to see how the internal discourse is taking place after the after the massacres. I was able to get the internal archives until 1909. Basically, they're discussing about uh, more procedural administrative things, but not about the massacres. Is that because they were they're just they don't exist or they were not made available to you? I don't know if they exist. I don't know if they exist. So that's another question. I mean, it has to do with the second. Uh, second, I'd like there. The second has to do with 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 finding a very important document, which was the report of Hago Babigian. Babigian was uh, part of the parliamentary investigative inquiry commission, who was sent to Adana in order to inquire about the events. He was a CUP member, so he was chosen because he was a CUP member that more loyal to the CUP, apparently, uh, supposedly, let's say, but he goes to Odana and investigates and comes back with shocked with the events. And he writes uh, uh, he writes an 80-page report in Ottoman, which he was supposed to read it in the parliament, but three days prior to his testimony, he dies supposedly also in mysterious uh, mysterious. The conditions that report never exists that report i was in, i was i wasn't able to find that report it doesn't it doesn't mean that never exists but we don't have access to that report we don't know where is the report we don't know because the only armenian report that appears is 1919 there are certain versions of the report that appear in french and english in 1913 or 11 but we don't have the full ottoman report so there are challenges in conducting such a research, but it's also uh, we shouldn't over rely on documents because it is the task of historian to interpret the event. And as I said earlier, massacre is such a complex phenomenon is that we need also social scientific approach to understand the psychology of the perpetrator and mainly ask the large question, the elephant in the room, how neighbors living together for such a long time start killing each other you know perpetrating massacres and how ordinary men become killers i mean the host of perpetrators in the case of the other massacres are maybe some of them are denizens but most of them are also riffraffs uh, uh circassians uh their uh their illeg- irregular forces migrant workers and people just you know uh, coming from different parts of the surrounding villages. And for them, it's not m- mostly about ideology. It's not they're convinced that the Armenians were part of a constitutional uh, constitutional uh, conspiracy. But for them, it's also material gain. This right. fact that the migrant workers, for example, thousands of migrant workers, Armenian mi- migrant workers were killed. And that's why the numbers that the Ottoman government gives in terms of victims is very problematic. They say 6,000 Armenians were killed. But due to the fact that the presence of thousands of Armenian workers during the time uh, uh, it, it was not recorded, we don't have a census about, the, uh, about, about these migrant workers, uh, leads to, uh, leads to uh, uh, our conclusion that the number is higher than that. So think about the, uh, uh, about the envy about the resentment of the migrant workers against the Armenians. As a matter of fact, most of the Armenian factories, the uh, implements of the uh, cotton production, producing cotton implements, 
uh, uh, everything was burned by the migrant workers and others, kind of the uh, rage against modernization. And so on, you know, it's, uh, it is a difficult project. It is, has been a difficult project. And here's the thing, you know, uh, as a historian, you have to be honest. If you have found documents that would say, for example, we are preparing an uprising and we need more, more weapons, then I have to say that. For right. example, I've done extensive research in the Dashnak archives, and the Dashnaks have played an important role in Adana in the post-revolutionary period. And is in this inner, in, in these inner, inner circulating uh, correspondences, we see a lot of discussion about weapons and bombs. But the key word in these documents, correspondences, are self-defense. Self-defense. We, de- we need these de- weapons for self-defense. There isn't any single word about offense. And these correspondences, one can find out, one can uh, see the way in which pessimism after the 1900 revolution was dominating in the region of Adana and Silesia due to the fact that revolution, despite the fact that it began a new phase, the ancien regime continued to rule in different parts of the Ottoman Empire. In sections, for example, in Adana, the ancien regime ruled, and that's why there was a tension between the CUP and the government, local government. So the aim was to have a, a, a self-defense. Had I found that they were planning for an uprising, I should have mentioned that as an honest historian. Another case, for example, for a long time, people have been saying that the prelate of Adana, Bishop Musher, who played an important role in uh, as, as a key figure, and people always doubted about his intentions that he was going to become the king of Adana. And at one time, there was a procession that he was wearing like a king. The records indicate that, for example. He wasn't wearing like a king. He was, he was wearing his regular vests during a procession ceremony. But since maybe the masses haven't seen the inner the Armenian church and then the way in which bishops were during ceremonies right. they they interpreted that as a as an as an uprising as 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 kind of a hint that he this guy is planning to become the king but I found out reading in his memoir that he was unpublished memoirs that he was uh, he was a hunchak revolutionary as a matter of fact prior to coming to the to Adana but then he had a dissension with the disagreement with the party and he left the party and came to Ottoman. So the records of the Ottoman government about their suspicion from Bush, uh, Bishop, uh, Bishop Musher is right to that extent. But I don't think that he had any plan to uprise, uh, planning an uprising or anything. As a matter of fact, there is another thing that is not mentioned in the Ottoman historiography, the inner the intra-Armenian conflicts in Adana that takes place between the Dashnaks, the Hunchaks, and the Ramgavars, between Bishop Musher and the Armenian Catholic, Catholicos of Sis, between Bishop Musher and another major figure, Garabet Gokterelian, was a large landowner and a major figure in Adana. He was a lawyer, he was, uh, he was a, a, a prominent figure, and also he was a figure that instilled uh, the fear among the Muslim population that you see this in the correspondences, Ottoman correspondences, that part of these rumors, actually, they say 
Garabet Gokterelian is on the on 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 the horse, bringing six thousand Armenians with him, coming to uh, coming to, for example, coming to Bahche or coming to Jabali Barakat. You know th- that doesn't it didn't exist. You know, kind of these figures play an important role in the period. And one important thing that we have to we have also to mention that Bishop Mushek despised actually Garabet Gokterelian. Yukterelian was in the prison for about 10 years uh, prior to the revolution. He was released during the revolution as part of releasing most of the prisoners. And hence, you have the intra-Armenian competition that's taking place in Ottawa, which is important. So as historians, we have to mention all these intricacies that are happening. If he's a revolutionary, we have to say he's a revolutionary. He was a revolutionary or he had a revolutionary. Right. Well, I, I agree with you there. I always tell people I'm beholden to the truth. I'm not beholden to advocate for one version of history or another. So I, I commend you for taking that um, mindset and applying it. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, that there are misunderstandings about this, about these massacres. There, there are, um, you know, gaps in the scholarship. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what differentiates your research here in this book from what's already out there about the Adana massacres. And and you, if you could also mention, you know, going into it, something like this, you might have some hypotheses of what you expect. And sometimes you find things that are surprising along the way. So if you could, or maybe you didn't, but if you could talk about both of those things, like how does this book differentiate or is different from previous scholarship? Uh, what misunderstandings, you know, or, or notions do you dispel? And then, were, you know, were there any kind of surprising things along the way? Uh, first of all, you know, one of the most important stereotypes that I, I try to refute is the fact that Islam is uh, a violent religion or mm-hmm. violence. And this this has been sometimes uh, argued in historiography of the Armenian genocide. In the past, mostly, but things have been changing. So I argue in the book that massacre as a phenomenon is not only pertinent to Ottoman Empire, it's pertinent to every society, east, west, north, south, right. southern globe, north, east, west. Uh, and to that extent, we have to understand these massacres as a human phenomenon. We have to understand the human reaction to these massacres because massacres have their own uh, progression, their own uprising, their own decline. It's kind of a logical approach, unlike other people who would think of massacres as something that has gone out of control. Think of it in the following way. Governments always refute the fact that massacres have taken place in their own countries. They use different words in order to prevent responsibility. Such words could be riots and disturbances. Right. So the in the case of the Adana, it's the Islam did not play an important role. Uh, economic reasons, uh, uh, national, ethnic reasons, ethno-religious reason, reasons, but religion was used to a certain extent on the lower levels. So we can't argue that Adana was first uh, uh, Islamic motivated massacre. Second, we cannot argue that Adana is a dress rehearsal. I cannot argue. The other people can argue. Other people can argue. I cannot argue that. I don't argue as Adana is a dress rehearsal to the Armenian genocide. Uh, 
And uh, to that extent, uh, other historians, for example, have approached the Adana massacre solely from the uh, Armenian archives, while uh, others have approached it solely from the Ottoman archives. I, uh, what I attempted to do in this book is to write an integrative history of the Adana massacres based on multiple sources, as I said, uh, pertaining to the victims, perpetrators, and the bystanders, and uh, by also providing a social scientific analysis to these massacres, because massacres are such a complex phenomenon that relying on solely on historical documents without interpretation, without understanding uh, emotions, without understanding, uh, uh, without understanding fear, without understanding right. uh, uh, euphoria, or uh, or rumors were not able to explain these massacres. Uh, findings are important. Also, uh, one of the important finding is the is the way in which justice was achieved in the in the course of Adana. We have uh, after the Adana massacres. The, uh, there is a local court martial that was established, which accused Armenians for an uprising. These these local lo- local court martials were formed by some of the perpetrators, and Armenians were very angry about it. They were imprisoned. Hundreds of Armenians were imprisoned, as well Muslims were imprisoned. You know, uh, and Armenians complained about that. The government decides to send a second uh, court martial from the uh, capital. Uh, by the, with the presidency of Kenan Pasha, he goes to Adana uh, in order to establish new court marshals. And the problem with these court marshals is the second court marshal is that they relied on the eyewitness account and the uh, and the reports of the first court marshal, which had uh, which had uh, taken or extracted the eyewitnesses' account by force and torture, so they're unreliable. And the and even we see this happening in the in the in the uh, in the reports that were sent by the Dashnak parties that you know that the workings of the court martial are very problematic because uh-huh. most of the people who suffered the massacres in the periphery wouldn't be able to come to the center of the cities in order to give their uh, testimonies. It's uh, hundreds of hours away, maybe walking. They didn't have right. the means of transportation, so it is. They were putting a scene of uh, court martial, which was highly problematic. So they relied on the testimonies of the first court martial, which was taken under the uh, under torture uh, by forcing the local people who were imprisoned to admit that Armenians were planning an uprising. Right. So when Kanan Pasha comes with the second court martial, he accepts. The uh, the uh, he 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 accepts the testimonies of the first court martial and then uh, declares that the Armenians were to be blamed because they initiated an uprising. Now at the same time, the uh, the uh, the government sends the a parliamentary commission and a, a government commission. Uh, Babigian was part of the, the parliamentary commission and he comes and he sees how things are working. Uh, he's a lawyer. He's a top-notch lawyer. And he sees how things are working and he starts criticizing the second court martial. And due to his criticism, due to his vocal vocal thing, the second court martial was annulled. And the third court martial was sent under Fazil Pasha. And due to Hagub Babigian's efforts and the efforts of the Armenian administration, the patriarch who resigns and sign of protest at the time, there is a third court martial which now convicts 
the real culprits for their role in the massacres, but that's but with a very, very light sentences. These light sentences, the most the 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 highest meaning the most extreme sentence that they got, the six or seven culprits were two years banishment to one week in prison. Wow. Around six Armenians were, uh, or not around, six Armenians were sentenced to death on the gallows and about 13 Muslims were sentenced to death on the gallows. So this is, uh, th- these are part of the interesting things of the finding and the role of Hagub Babigyan. But also I'd like to see the inner workings of the, of these, of these, uh, uh, of these, uh, of these massacres, meaning the inner, inner uh, correspondences of the different branches of the court marshals because court marshals are not about only the court marshal they establish a different bodies to investigate going to different places and these right. reports so there's a there should be a whole body of reports in adana which i haven't found or couldn't find uh but go, go, you know the babikan report that you mentioned i mean that almost is like a mystery right i mean that, that that's like a I don't know, mystery, but also the sociological, psychological elements that you had referred to, uh, fear, euphoria, mob rule, right? How does an ordinary person turn into a murderer? How does, how does fear, and even if it sounds crazy, right? Like the, these conspiracy theories sound outlandish, right? How do people believe them and how does fear overtake them? I find that that is the toughest stuff, the mood and the emotions of a time and place are often the toughest things for a historian to recapture because those things aren't written down very much, right? So, yeah. so I commend you for being able to touch upon those things that is the hardest thing to reach. The, usually it's the government, formal government activity is the most straightforward because they, governments keep track of things, especially well-run governments or you know have heavy administrations, they keep track. And as long as you get access to those documents, you have a good sense of what people are doing. But to capture a mood, uh, to capture a sentiment, to capture an emotion, that's a very hard thing to do as a historian. So, and, and, and you captured that you know, as well as I think people uh, could have. Um, so that was really good. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about sort of broader takeaways. Um, you, you mentioned at the end of the book, um, you, you compare the Adana massacres to similar atrocities, and, and you pick two out, the pogroms in Odessa in 1905, uh, Sikh massacres in India in 1984. Uh, are there broader takeaway lessons that uh, a reader should, uh, should, you know, should take away from the book? Are there bigger you know, themes that, that are related uh, among these different atrocities? Uh, one thing we have to uh, we have to, I think, emphasize here, Michael, is that the structures of violence have existed and exist and will exist in the future. Uh, key players, uh, agent provocateurs, uh, actors, uh, mobs, riffraffs, police, investigation commissions, lack of justice. All these we see happening. In, the, in similar cases in the phase of history. What we should learn from the Adana massacres have, uh, are the following, I think, is that the local administration should have been 
more strict with its way in stopping these massacres. So first and foremost, the responsibility goes on the on the Vali himself, the governor, who only received didn't re- only received two years of banishment from a position in the government. Right. However, in the in the 1986 uh, Damascus massacres, the governor was uh, was uh, hanged. In this case, you see uh, you see the local government did not institute a radical approach in instituting a curfew or a martial law in order to prevent uh, the escalation of tensions. He complained that he wasn't he didn't have much uh, forces, etc. But we also know the way in which he acted erratically by sending. Uh, by sending uh, uh, the telegrams to cipher cipher telegrams to the periphery to the other districts, saying that Adana is in mess and Armenians are uprising. And this also, uh, as I as I argued, the written form of rumors, uh, you know, solidifies ethnic boundaries and makes the prophecy more realistic. And this also led to the uh, spread of the massacres in different parts of the of the uh, of the uh, region of Adana. Second, the central government played an important role here. Of course, the Armenians complained that the undersecretary of the of the government at the time, Adil Bey, who had to send uh, 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 had to send a strict strict uh, orders to say that do whatever you can in order to stop the uh, disturbances or the massacres, use any type of lethal force. What he did actually, he wrote a letter and that he wrote a telegram, sent a telegram, that telegram became uh, the focus of, of controversy between the Armenians and the government saying the following, uh, make sure, saying the following, you know, try to control the situation and make sure that nothing should harm the foreign institutions, the banks or the consulates. So Armenians think about this in a euphemi- euphemistic way that kill Armenians, but don't touch the uh, foreign institutions. So the central government should have sent a much more radical thing use lethal power in order to institute uh, institute uh, law and order. So I blame to that extent the local governor and his administration for in, in its inability to institute law and order, in, in inability to take the precautions in order to prevent such an outburst of violence. Having said that, he did actually in September of 1908, September, November, I think, or September, November, November, I think, when the Muslim holiday uh, of uh, was taking place. Of course, if you think about it, uh, violence always erupts during holidays, all right, if, because it was Easter at the time for Armenians, all right. For the uh, for uh, the Muslims in November, October or November was Eid al-Adha, the Adha, uh, festival, a holiday, 
And there were a lot of rumors that Armenians are going to massacre Muslims and Muslims are going to massacre Armenians. Right. What, what the Vali did, that he brought additional contingents from Beirut in order to monitor the situation and also assigned both Muslim and Armenian notables, Turkish Muslim Armenian notables to roam around the city in order to prevent the happening of such thing. So this means it could have been done. But think also that what added to the situation is the counter-revolution that didn't exist back in October of 1908. So that kind of, you know, way in which this erupted. So structures of violence is a logical, is logic, massacres are a logical event that has a beginning and an ending. They have the similar players and they're part of history and they're part of, uh, you know, of our uh, present and the future. But as I said, governments are, if it happens in a certain city or a certain country, governments have always the ability to uh, to deny these events, they do. They would put um, form an investigation commission. In the case of India, for example, in the Sikh massacres, I think about more than ten commissions were were established in the course of twenty, thirty years, and still justice has not been achieved. So, right. Well, that 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 to me is sort of like the bigger lessons for human rights, and uh, you know, ultimately, can the the lessons that you've uncovered, right, and the and the points that you're unearthing, you know, can they contribute to a larger body of work uh, in the human rights field to potentially, not maybe completely stop, but diminish in in both frequency and in volume, as you said, maybe the Adana massacres would have happened, but had the local government acted more aggressively and more appropriately, they would have led to uh, you know a lot lot fewer deaths and a lot fewer victims. So. Um, that that to me was a was a great way to uh, end the book. Um, we have, we have a couple of minutes left. Um, I wanted to talk to you about some broader topics. You're you are the president of the Society of Armenian Studies, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you see Armenian scholarship, uh, Armenian studies going in the coming years, uh, and what challenges stand in the way, and what opportunities are there in the field. I think Armenian studies itself is an evolving field. I mean, we don't have this notion of what Armenian studies is as a as a solid thing. Uh, you know, in the past, Armenian studies has always been associated with the classical age, that Armenian studies, if you do only classical Armenian Karapar, you're the real Armenian studies or medieval Armenian history or ancient history. That's kind of the real Armenian history. But we are, uh, Armenian studies as a field is evolving, I think. It's becoming interdisciplinary, cross-cultural research, and we have a new generation that is really uh, benefiting from the latest research done in different fields in really creating a new vision of what Armenian studies should be. Uh, You know, uh, language is not uh, an obstacle anymore. We have scholars that use uh, Farsi, Ottoman, Young scholars use Farsi, Ottoman, Armenian, uh, you know, sources in order to reconstruct the history of the Armenians of the region. Uh, but I see a kind of uprising here, not a prior, a, a kind of emergence of uh, few, few uh, areas that I would like Armenian studies to develop more. The early modern period, I think, is important. Uh, we have new scholars, and that's thanks to Sebu Aslanian, 
prominent early modern period scholar who is uh, producing new students who are uh, writing about the early modern period because early modern is really is is really very uh, poor in terms of scholarship. You have right. medieval and then Cilicia and then everyone jumps to 19th century. Uh, I'd like to see more work being done in culture and social history of Armenians, more work done in economic history because Armenians as merchants, as economic uh, players played a dominant role not only in the Russian history, in Ottoman history, but in Iranian history. Uh, I'd like to see more work done in the Armenian diasporas that emerge uh-huh. prior to the uh, genocide and after the genocide. Now, how many works do we have today about the Armenian uh, the diaspora? And this is one question that you've raised too uh, in the past about, we had discussion about the, the this about Armenian-American history. Right. It's not about only genocide and post-genocide and you know, we need more history to understand the Armenian experience in the autumn, in the in the United States, in the Americas to that extent. Armenian yes. experience in the Americas. How many work do we have about the formation of the Armenian communities in Latin America? Uh, we have one book, uh, which is Varta Matusian's book, which is in Armenian. Uh, but we need more books about the formation of Armenian communities in the, in the United States, for example, and Americas. Not as part and parcel of, of Armenian history, but as part and parcel of American history. Right. history of the Americas. And that's how we will be able to contribute more, not only to the history of Armenians, but to history of American history. We cannot, we can no more discuss Armenians in America as an ethnic group, right? We need to discuss them as an, as, 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 a, as a group, as a group who experienced American history and were part on parcel of American history. Uh, the same goes with Middle Eastern histories. We have uh, certain books that have been published about Armenians in the Middle East, but most of them tend to be in Armenian, and some of them are uh, do not have the sophistication of uh, what we have produced, what it is produced in the Western scholarship in terms of understanding uh, diaspora, understanding the, the diasporic theories. One of the important books I would uh, uh, mention here is Solim Nalbandian's book uh, in the, uh, uh, about uh, Lebanon, but also to that extent uh, uh, we need more work about also Armenia in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the way in which Western scholarship should approach Armenia, not necessarily as a homeland, not necessarily as something belonging to us, but a case study of understanding the way in which a post-Soviet country is struggling with the uh, legacy of a uh, so- Soviet legacy and trying to oscillate between the East and the West and between democracy, le- liberalism, and conservatism. So these are some areas that need to be, I think, addressed. And I'm positive about the field. I, need, I, need, I see a new generation, but there are major obstacles. Michael, as you know, these obstacles has to have to do, and I would like to end this with the with the obstacles. Uh-huh. Uh, let's think of it as a positive, but also as a negative comment that uh, the job market today is very tough for those who do Armenian, Armenian studies. But I, I tell everyone, try to represent yourself as an interdisciplinary scholar, scholar who does Middle East and views Armenians, Armenians from the prism of Middle Eastern or Ottoman history or Iranian history. 
uh, we, we only have today two postdocs positions, one in Michigan, the other one in UCLA. We need to raise funding to establish, I think, more postdocs as a way in which the recent graduate students can be trained, can have some two years in order to write their books, write uh, transform their books into, into a manuscript. The second has to do with research funding. Uh, as far as I know, we have two or three institutions today that provide research funding. One of them is Society for Armenian Studies. The second is Nasser, and the other is USC. I don't know of any other organization that provides uh, funding for for general students. Right? Of course, Wilvenkian too provides funding. Uh, UCLA provides provides funding for its own uh, faculty and students. But I, I'd like to see more funding or establishment of a major fund or endowment that we will be able to fund students to do their research, that will be able to at least carry these students for an additional two or three years after graduation so they can stand on their feet in order to, to find a job in this difficult job market, where it's not only per- these difficulties, not only pertaining to Armenian studies, pertaining to the general academia within the, right. the non-STEM fields, humanities and social sciences. Right. Well, thank you. And there are formidable challenges. And But as you said, a lot of opportunities. Uh, there's still a lot of parts of Armenian history and culture that haven't been thoroughly explored. And as you said, how they connect to the rest of the world. Uh, Armenia as a post-Soviet Republic, Armenian Americans as as immigrants. So, you know, how do they deal with assimilation and, and, and identity, right? I mean, these are these apply to all immigrants, which is, you know, much of the American population at some point or another. So um, really fascinating opportunities in the field as well. I'm going to end it with one last question. You touched upon this earlier. What's next for you uh, as a scholar? Uh, as a scholar, I'd like to write the end of this trilogy, which would be the Balkan Wars of 1912-1913. Not necessarily a history of the Balkan Wars, not necessarily going to uh, Edirne or going to uh, Bulgaria or other places, but more. But for me, I'm interested to write the way in which the Balkan Wars uh, changed the dynamics of uh, of the relations between the Ottoman government and the groups within the Ottoman Empire, more specifically the Armenians, the Arabs, or the Albanians too, to that extent. That's a major project. It would take, take years, uh, but there are a few other projects I'm working on next year, an edited volume on denial of genocides in the 20, 20, 21st century is going to be published. By University of Nebraska Press. I'm currently working on an edited volume on the Social Democratic and Chukyan Party uh, at crossroads between uh, the Ottoman Empire and the diaspora. And I have minor other projects, but uh, there are a lot of challenges too. Well, thank you, Bedros. On behalf of the Society of Armenian Studies, it's been a very illuminating podcast. Thank you, Michael. And I, I highly appreciate uh, for, the, uh, for the interview. You're welcome.